Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today we're going to revisit one of the foundational concepts of the study of international image, and that is the country of origin effect. Now, Simon, could you, in a nutshell, uh, sum up the country of origin effect for listeners who have um, may, maybe know the know the theory without knowing it has a, has a name? Hmm. Of course. Well, this is really where I where I started getting interested in the idea of national image. Um, it was my way into the topic, um, and basically, what I became interested in was the the made in label, which is really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. What impact does it have? on a product or a service, if you know where it comes from, made in China, made in Germany, whatever it is, and more interestingly, vice versa. So if you, uh, as a country, produce a large number of well-known consumer brands that are exported around the world, what does that do for the image of your country? Are they, spoiler, yes, they are, are they effective ambassadors (laughs) of your country's image? and uh, that's a very interesting dynamic, which uh, we could we could spend a little bit of time talking about. But the general principle is that it's um, it's a process that works two ways. It's a win-win. If uh, you've got a, um, a number of manufacturers that produce uh, world-class goods and which are strongly associated with the country of origin, uh, that's that's good for sales for the company and it's good for the image of the country. And you get into a virtuous cycle where the two benefit each other right. and you do better and better and better. There are a handful of countries that produce a plethora of famous global consumer brands. Um, America, probably the largest number. I've never tried to count these. It would be interesting to do that. But um, America, it seems to me, probably produces the largest number of famous consumer brands that are associated with America, that are known to be American. But um, uh, but but uh, but Germany does very well, has a very large number. Japan does a, does does a lot. Um, in the second tier, you've got countries like uh, France, Italy, the UK, who don't do badly. Um, Korea, the Switzerland, I guess. I know, you know, Switzerland, uh, although, although in Switzerland, quite a large number of them, it's a little bit like Sweden in the sense that there's a tendency for them to be B two B brands, but not exclusively by any means. Um, What's a B two B brand? A business to business brand. I'm sorry. Oh, business, so, yes. Right. So, an, an industrial uh, brand like in Sweden, for example, uh, you've got uh, ABB RBB, which is a huge industrial brand, but not well known to consumers. On the other hand, but I'm thinking um, about you know in Switzerland, uh, you get um, uh, you know there are a number of consumer uh, products uh, that um, will put the Swiss flag hmm. on um, uh, you know so, so watches, luggage, hmm. um, uh, and, and those sorts of uh, those, those sorts of things that that I would certainly be more interested in them because. They come from from Switzerland, and I, I agree with you that this was one of my points of entry, mm. uh, especially because I f- I felt that I liked things from particular places. Mm. Well, there there's... and I can remember learning was, as you learn about the world. It's one of oh yes, good wine comes from France, yeah. uh, good watches come from Switzerland. This is something your parents uh, teach you. Yes, 
and and it and it makes a it makes a fun game as well to try to dream up the pairings of products and countries that work and the ones that don't work. So yes. you know why why doesn't Belgian perfume work? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in uh, Only Fools and Horses, they don't say so I have computers from Mauritius. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, those sorts of no, absolutely, it's uh, that sort of surprise is the root of humor. But where you you're putting it together with two. Um, well-known countries like Belgian perfume, yeah, um, yeah, that is that, that is uh, that is a fun party game. Mm. Uh, so, but in terms of the nation brands index, um, mm. Japan is leading in terms of exports, which I guess shows um, the you know the strongest uh, country of origin effect being for J- Japanese manufacturers. Yes, right now, what what that tells us is very simply that the addition of made in Japan to a product adds more value than made in anywhere else does to any other product. So made in the USA doesn't add as much perceived value to the product as made in Japan does. Okay, so (laughs) you and I have known each other for a a number of years, and Mm. I remember uh, maybe 15 years ago that you Mm. were saying country of origin effect should could will change? Hmm. Um, what did you think was going to happen heading into the twenty first century, and has it has it happened? Are you seeing signs of shifts hmm. in the country of origin effect? Well, I wrote a book back in Lord knows when two thousand and three. I think it must have been called Brand New Justice, in which I um, made a hopeful prediction that at some point in the next few years, we would start to see more variety in country of origin effect, that all of the famous successful global brands wouldn't just come from the usual suspects, uh, Japan, America, and so forth, but they might start coming from some some developing countries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I argued in the book that because uh, brand value adds really the largest slice of profitability to any business, if we're really interested in economic development and leveling up the world, then we, the West, who understand how to add intangible value through branding, should be mm-hmm. um, exporting that knowledge to the developing world. Because what I argued in the book was what we what we do with the developing world, we claim that we want poor countries to get rich. We claim that we need them and want them to develop. But what we do is we shift off all the cheap, non-value-added parts of our of our industries to those developing countries we get them to do the manufacturing we source the raw ingredients we get them to do the shipping but we don't teach them how to brand and the reason we don't do that is because that last mile from the finished product to the consumer the added value of the brand is where all the profits are the lion's share and um there are some calculations which i dug out that show that the brand value on the planet is anything up to um, 33% of all the money in the world is intangible um, assets. Reputation comes from branding. So so my argument was simply, if we mean what we say about wanting development, we should be um, working with manufacturers in developing countries and helping them to develop their own brands. Um, And I discussed discussed in detail um, a collection of interesting-looking um, companies, some of them startups, some of them better established, in poorer and developing countries, uh, and these were all companies who it seemed to me had the chance of building global brands one day. And a few of a few of those predictions have come true. Um, 
I talked a lot about China because at the time the uh, the Chinese government was talking explicitly about wanting to become brand owners back in in the early 2000s and to speed up the process they were copying Japan they were copying exactly the same process mm-hmm. that Jap- Japanese companies had done after the second world war to speed up the process they were buying up existing western brands um just in order to leapfrog that long slow development that Japan had been through um and i also talked about a then relatively recent uh, tea brand from uh, sri lanka uh, called dilma uh, started by a, a man who i met and who became a firm friend of mine uh, meryl fernando who had spent almost all of his career working for the mostly british owned global tea companies who sourced their tea of course from sri lanka because the tea has to come from ceylon um mm-hmm. but then all the profits went to um the, the british tea companies and fairly late in his career merrill decided that he wanted to create an an authentic global sri lankan tea brand and so he named it after his two sons um dilma um and mm-hmm. that, that's half of each of his two sons names mm-hmm. and it really has become phenomenally successful it's the um it's the prestige tea brand that you find in just about every classy hotel wherever you go in the world now and it's sri lankan right. owned and it's the only That's big great. tea company that is owned in sri lanka so some signs that uh, well wisely i didn't put a date on it um some signs that this is happening but it's happening quite slowly mm-hmm. because as we've often said in these podcasts uh images change over a very very long period of of time they take a long time to form long time to change mm-hmm. uh you know thinking about this as a historian I'm I'm struck by how very familiar this discussion is. I remember in the you know um if we look back uh it's I think around the 1870s that countries start getting worried about made in labels and it, mm-hmm. two places in particular France is worried about things that aren't really champagne mm-hmm. and Scotland is worried about things that aren't really uh really whiskey and mm-hmm. uh they begin negotiations to make sure a made in label means what it says right i think the the the, the best case of fluidity in uh, country of origin effect is um germany mm-hmm. um I'm, i i think i'm very lucky to have known my uh, grandparents well they were children in the first decade of the 20th century and my my um, mother's mother told me that they'd always look out for this sign on the bottom of toys um it was the 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 four letters d r g m which stood for deutsches reich uh, gebrauchsmuster uh, mm. basically um um uh, um um made in germany mm. uh made in the german empire uh, but they said the kids said it stood for dirty rotten german make and mm. was a indication that it was a poor quality tin uh tinned toy yes. uh, and um this that, that little anecdote is uh, actually correlates with the impression of german manufacturers in the late 19th century particularly where they were identified they uh, industrializing late they were associated with uh producing in volume at low cost and mm-hmm. that meant making things cheaply um yes. but germany decided to change that mm-hmm. we have the formation of the um 
uh, of of the Werkbund, the work group of designers who decided they would um, make uh, uh, all German manufacturers at, at, a, at a premium. Uh, and brought in the you know the, the the great industrialists signed on to this and um, and then they kept it up for a hundred years and stuck yeah. with it yes. and uh, it didn't take a hundred years I'd say this began about 1900 so it's probably by by the middle years of the first world war Germany has a um, a reputation for higher quali- high quality mm. um, uh, industrial goods em- emerging um, and uh, they stuck with it. I think in, in in the case of that story, it helped that Germany was already known for uh, for science and um, mm. academic uh, sure. study, and it had this older heritage of the German guild um, that the Germans themselves could fall back on and could think, yeah, what we're doing fits who we have been in the past. Yes. And maybe they could come to see with producing things in volume as being an anomaly and yes. um, uh, 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 being uh, engineers producing things of supreme skill and quality as being yeah. consistent with what it is to be to be german but it's obviously the i, I think it's the big um success story in mm. um uh in 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 branding and in um uh this whole country of origin um uh it's interesting to see how i th- i think today we can see china is looking to make the same transition yes. but do, do you recognize that absolutely i was i was i was going to say um you could argue that that first phase of producing cheap but very widely available goods is perhaps a necessary first step um mm-hmm. because certainly that's what japan did starting much later after the second world war and then china mm-hmm. following japan's example and then, well, and in between uh, Taiwan, you know, when we were kids, Taiwan, also uh, Korea. that's where the toys came from, right? Yeah, yeah, and also Korea, and and um, and, and I think that there's a there's a strategy there that seems to work. You produce um, in volume at a sense at an attractive low price, first of all. Mm-hmm. So in effect, what you're doing is you're flooding the global marketplace um, with with your products, and people buy them because they're cheap. You don't earn a lot of respect, but you earn a great deal of just basic brute awareness. Um, and people may despise it. Remember back in the 60s and 70s, people used to joke about made in Japan um, as until quite recently, and indeed still now, they joke about made in China. But the second stage is that you then start to develop um, higher quality stuff. So you expand your range and then there are luxury mm-hmm. producers at the top. China is at the point of doing that now. So we're starting to get um, Chinese branded luxury automobiles, um, mm-hmm. Great Wall, Geely, and so on and so forth. And in the West, some countries, of course, they're pushing this sooner than others, depending on the distribution networks, depending on the on on what, what they can what they can manage to do. But that seems to be the process, and that seems to be what works. And then, at a certain point, you can leave behind the cheap mass market exports. And the lower price stuff, and you can gradually start to completely shed that image of being uh, cheap and cheerful. And after a while, people forget it. Today, both Japan and Germany are associated uniquely with um, higher margin, higher value, higher price, higher quality, higher brand uh, products. And today, so do, you, do you think it's un- unreasonable for Korea? 
to hope that one day its products will retail for the same price that the Japanese can get. Because, you know, the Koreans complain about this Korea discount mm. that means that, a, a, you know, a Samsung retails still 25% less than a yeah. Sony just because of the country of origin. It, it really... It really, I should imagine that I can't see any reason why they couldn't um, get to the same level as Japan over time. But it's not entirely straightforward because there are some countries, for example, that have been playing that game for a very long time and still find there's a discount effect in certain product yes. areas. And that's to do with... Well, I think in previously you've talked to me about the problems for Italian precision engineers. Exactly. When the Italian country of origin is associated with a sexy, stylish... Uh, thing it, it, that doesn't help you if you're selling an engine component. No, exactly. And, Unless uh, and it's that, stuck in a Ferrari, then you're fine. But if it's well, going into an aircraft engine, or yeah, that that's that's the contradiction that exists in the mind of consumers, and it doesn't seem to bother them. They're perfectly happy to associate Italy very strongly with with supercars and therefore high performance engineering. But you try and sell them a straight technology product, and it has to be discounted <laughs> because it comes from from Italy. Um, so, uh, you know, Italy is an example of how it, 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 it isn't necessarily going to work in your favor. Um, you know, Germany has managed very well because the German nature is associated with doing things well and doing things carefully and doing things to a high mm -hmm. standard and being very precise. The same is true of Switzerland. The same is true of Scandinavia. It's not true of Latin countries. Latin countries are associated in people's minds with the opposite nonsensical cliche, which is that they're full of um, spirit and creativity and passion. And so they can do mm. things that are bright red and very beautiful and very exciting, but somehow people can't square that in their mind with precision. Um, and, and it's daft because it's wrong. You know, the Italians are perfectly good at doing precision stuff, just as the Germans are not at all bad at doing passionate stuff. There are some German fashion brands uh, out there which do wonderful fashion. They don't dare to admit that they're German because they know that it works in the consumer's mind just as badly as, what was it, Madagascan computers? But uh, Yes, uh, Mauritius. Mauritian computers. Um, yes. Um, but if, as you try and popularize a brand... I think you can learn a lot from the name that's chosen. Mm -hmm. And way back uh, when Sony was emerging, they deliberately picked a name that sounded American. Mm -hmm. They were the first Japanese country to have their uh, their name in Roman uh, lettering, I believe, yeah. on, on, on the product. So they, they were kind of uh, um, uh, hoping they might be mistaken for an American yes. uh, company. Uh, the ch Chinese companies today, are they following a kind of... Um, a, a global. Uh, what do you think of the, the names of Chinese companies? Are they trying to um, be easy for foreigners to uh, recognize? What 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 do we have in the race? Uh, well, Alibaba, all, or what, what do we yeah, deduce from all, Alibaba as a name? They're, they're all trying different things, aren't they? I mean, the the most the most valuable company in China is Tencent, which is to me seems to be very mm -hmm. obviously American. Um, yes, Ali, Alibaba is pure one hundred percent Western Orientalism. Um, it, it's a it's a, a pseudo Arabic um, name right. from the from the, uh, the, the Arabian Nights story Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, I guess. Forty Thieves, which is a which yes. is a, a European uh, fantasy of of Arabia, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, certainly as retold, it is. Yes, as, yes. as retold. Yes. Um, on the other hand, you then have some authentic Chinese sounding brands, like one of one of the oldest international Chinese brands, Qingdao. 
the, the lager, named after the city right. where it's made. And I think you right. rightly pointed out that they learned how to make lager because it was a German uh, colony. That was right. That was the German mm. colony uh, back in the day. Yes. The every every, every country has its, almost every country has its international German lager brand uh, because mm-hmm. some, um, some smart German expatriate has taught them how to make uh, lager. You know, Jamaica's uh, classic national brand, Red Stripe, is, is a German lager. Um, and, uh, and so are all the uh, Czech and uh, other um, European ones. Um, so Germany has well, I know the man who founded Carlsberg learned in Germany and then <laughs> took it home <laughs> to, to Copenhagen. Yes. And, and another, another early mover in, in uh, Chinese global brands is, of course, Hire, the refrigerator brand. Um, and that mm-hmm. it sounds like and is a German name. Um, it was because the factory that started making these refrigerators, I believe, bought up the equipment of a German company called Haier. And so they acquired the expertise, they acquired the equipment, and they acquired the brand equity all at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, this process starts off with basically low self-esteem, doesn't it? Nobody would want yes. to buy something that sounds as if it comes from our country because we're no good at doing things like that. Um, but then mm-hmm. gradually, as an exporting country acquires more confidence, then it acquires the confidence to realize that it can actually use its its own uh, national names, and that eventually will add value to it. Um, so we move with with um, uh, with Japan from uh, the, the 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 point of of Sony pretending to be or. Uh, hoping to be mistaken for a foreign brand to mm. Japanese names being appropriated by others because yes. they want to be seen as uh, Japanese rather than, well, in the, the famous case of, of the Dixon's um, Matsui brand Matsui, that yeah. want to be seen as Japanese, not uh, not mm. British. Uh, and, you've and called that, these that... cuckoo brands. Yeah. I, I've called them faux brands. Mm. Um, it's an Interesting. What are the big faux brands out there at the moment? I'm not sure if they're... Some of the interesting ones, I'm not sure actually whether they are deliberately cuckoo brands. I'm not sure if they have actually deliberately laid their egg in another country's nest. Um, Maybe it's just modesty, but I mean, a leading American global brand today, Amazon, if you think about Mm -hmm. it, that hardly sounds American, does it? Um, No. And um, I think that there are two things happening there. One is a desire to distract from your country of origin, um, perhaps yes. because they wanted to seem more global, perhaps yes, because transcend, they transcend, transcend your country of origin. Yes. Perhaps yes. because they know that it's potentially risky to associate yourself with a country of origin, you know, in the same way that uh, commercial brands that associate themselves with personalities can, um, can rue the day that they did it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, Michael Jackson and Pepsi. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit, a little bit like that old saying: uh, "Never, uh, never go on the stage with uh, animals and small children, because you never know what <laughs> they're going to do." And so that's why brands shouldn't associate themselves with famous personalities, because you never going, you never know when they're going to get indicted for something awful and trash mm-hmm. your company. And the same is true with countries. You know, you can you can proudly call yourself. Um, American Express because it feels good on the day you launch in 18 whatever but then there might come a day where actually being so inextricably associated with America might not be the best thing for you so I think there might have been a, 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 
subliminal, subconscious, or perhaps what do we know, maybe deliberate sense amongst the founders of Amazon that they wanted to decenter themselves, as you say, transcend their national boundaries, and maybe sounding natural and South American to American ears is kind of funky. Mm-hmm. And there are other examples of that, I'm sure. <laughs> the one that makes me laugh well, is um, Outback Steakhouse, you know, now a global brand uh, restaurant themed mm. around Australia with no link to Australia whatsoever sure. and very frustrating to Australian diplomats mm. that their attempts to um, uh, present Australia as the PhD country, uh, mm. you know, a country where um, provinces uh, have, so I think it's Victoria, uh, has education as its number one industry. And yeah. many Australian provinces have education as their number two industry. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't help to have a restaurant advertising with the slogan, life will still be here tomorrow. Let's go out back tonight. Like Crocodile Dundee was still playing in the movie theatres. Yeah, but um, I mean, it's a nice but, problem. But they don't... It's a nice problem to have, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it is, um, but, but, but frustrating and uh, there's no way that there's nothing, no lie has been lied. Uh, mm. There's no uh, grounds for legal action. It's just mm. your image can be taken on um, mm. for um, and advertised in a way that undermines what you would like it to be. Yeah. Um, but, not, but not nearly as badly as these countries imagine. Um, you know, in, in, in the end, uh, a country is quite a complicated thing and people's perceptions of countries are quite complex things and they're perfectly able um, to, to think, of, to have three or four quite different, even contradictory associations with the same country. I mean, all of that Australian um, good, good time stuff, these are wonderful associations and the Australians should quit carping about it, in my opinion. I mean, you know, they should... They, they, if, you know they they should they should try being the Democratic Republic of Congo for a few weeks and see what that yes. looks like. Yes, um, yes. No, these these yes. are positive associations, and that's all you can ask for. And it's up to you as a country to try to find ways of squaring those things, of of, of harmonising them in in such a way that they they make up um, a, a meaningful whole. Um, the the wrong thing to do is to start is to try to f- start thinking of ways of forcing international public opinion to change its mind or change its behavior or change the language it uses. You, it was interesting because right at the beginning of this conversation, you you mentioned how the French were worried about uh, the origin of champagne and the Scots were worried mm-hmm. about the origins of whiskey. And very often, far too often, where this actually ends up with is with the lawyers and mm-hmm. um, governments that start spending uh, obscene amounts of money on uh, legal advice to try to protect their country of origin. The the Swiss uh, attempt at um, nation branding has been almost exclusively about protecting and conserving their precious cross um, and their logo and their associations. If you want, you mentioned putting a, a Swiss flag on a product and how much value that adds to the product. Well, you need a license to do that in Switzerland and it's a very, very difficult one mm-hmm. to get. Um, so Switzerland arguably is one of those countries for whom the main challenge is perhaps protecting the equity, the sanctity of their country of origin effect. But mm. unfortunately, a lot of uh, other countries that don't have anything like such a powerful brand still try and do that. There was a case a number of years ago when I was advising the government of Jamaica 
And the Jamaicans were very upset about the fact that people kept on using Rastafarian colors and imagery and the colors of the Jamaican flag mm -hmm. uh, on their products. So there was a particular case where Adidas were selling a running shoe that had the colors of the Jamaican flag on it. And I forget mm -hmm. now the details, but there was probably some other Jamaican imagery. And the Jamaicans were understandably pretty upset about this because Adidas were getting extra money for this for this running shoe that had um, Jamaican associations, very positive. Um, and the Jamaicans were getting nothing from it at all. Um, and so effectively, their brand equity was being stolen from them by Adidas. And I can understand, I'm sure you can too, why that feels frustrating and why it feels wrong and unjust. But on the other hand, once you start going down that protection right. you the only people who win in the end are the lawyers. You can't change public opinion. And, and my advice to, to countries has always been to accept that this is flattery. If Adidas think mm -hmm. it's worth stealing your colors, then it means you've got something really valuable there. And it's up to you to, to make yeah. more out of it than Adidas does to use it yeah absolutely absolutely and make it uh to make it count um no i think i i i think that's right and i think some countries kind of underestimate the appeal of their colors and flag i mean i was thinking about um uh, brazil and mm. how long it took brazil to really leverage the uh Havaianas, uh brand of uh flip-flop mm. Yeah. Um, which is now a global brand and and I, I think um, associates with uh, you know Brazilian beach culture yeah. um, and uh, um, uh, but it, it, it you know th th those flip flops were launched in 1962 and it's only in mm. the last uh, 15 20 years that that it's actually been pushed overseas as something um, Brazilians can be proud of though. A little ironically, the name actually means Hawaiian. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, origins are always, um, uh, is it, the origins are a little slippery. It's and ironic that the most famous Brazilian uh, export brand uh, is uh, named after a, another place, was trading on the image of another place yes. at the time of launch. Yeah. Um, I've been predicting for more years than I care to remember um, the day when Brazilian fashion brands and food brands and lifestyle brands and music brands and sport brands mm. are flooding the marketplace worldwide because very few countries on earth have those positive associations of, of, of happy, carefree lifestyle of, mm. of parties and all the rest of it that Brazil has. And yet it never seems to happen. And I don't know whether that's because of internal right now, it would be a little bit difficult to imagine in the current regime and the current economic climate. But in the past, there have been plenty of opportunities for that to happen. And there, and there are any number of highly successful domestic Brazilian brands. The Brazilians mm -hmm. have got a genius for branding. They've got a genius for advertising. The, the international advertising competitions, the Brazilians are often uh, amongst the winners. I used to work in an advertising agency in, in Brazil way back in the 80s, and it was more exciting working there than it was working in London. So Brazil, I always said, has absolutely everything um, to be a major, major producer of global brands, and, and yet it doesn't happen. They have the same problem as the Italians, by the way, being another Latin country, right. that people associate them with having fun and a, a good time, mm -hmm. and it's difficult for them to, um, to, to gain 
credibility and respect in harder fields. So one of the most important, most successful Brazilian companies for decades has been Embraer, which makes um, small, short and mid-range aircraft. Um, And of course, there the associations are uh, quite wrong. Nobody somehow wants to feel that they're flying in an airplane that's made in Brazil. Um, And that's just because the associations feel wrong if all you know about Brazil is the cliché. Um, you know, is the pilot going to be drunk? Um, <laughs> because all they do uh, is, is drink cachaça. Um, so these things, these things can obviously work, work against you. But, you know, wh- when are we going to see this? When are we going to get a Brazilian government that actually realizes the potential for this? Well, the answer, mm. sadly, is probably never, because it takes more than one term in office to make these things happen. Right. Well, this is uh, um, so much fun to revisit the country of origin effect. I'm amazed how much we had to talk about. uh, But um, I think that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cull. And I'm still Simon Anhop.